Hi, I'm Sam Zimmerman, Director of Programming at Shudder. This bonus Video Palace episode features a great story from Professor Maynard Will's book, Video Palace, In Search of the Eyeless Man. As you likely discovered in the previous episode, Wills has been combing urban legends and mysterious disappearances to make sense of what happened to Mark Cambria and uncover truths about the eyeless man. Where does he come from? What does he want? And what can we do about it? As part of his research, Wills connected with several like-minded individuals and invited them to share their personal stories, ones that offer some connection or insight into this larger mystery. In this episode, you'll hear Graham Skipper's story, The Real Sharon Lockenby, read by Tim Page. You may know multi-talented Graham Skipper from his work originating the role of Herbert West in Stuart Gordon's stage musical of Reanimator, or from his various feature film appearances, including Beyond the Gates and All the Creatures Were Stirring. Currently, Sequence Break, a film Graham Skipper wrote and directed, is available on Shudder, as is In Search of Darkness, a documentary on the horror genre in the 80s, in which Graham appears as a subject. The real Sharon Lockenby is inspired by a chance meeting Graham had at the Fringe Festival in Edinburgh. It's a relatable, real-life nightmare about what it means to become a meme. You know, what do we get? What do we lose? What's in it for the eyeless man? Join our quest to uncover the truth about the eyeless man. Buy Video Palace in search of the eyeless man now, wherever you purchase books, ebooks, or audiobooks. The Real Sharon Lockenby Graham Skipper Professor Wills, thank you for reaching out. The following is the story I was telling you about via email. First, a little bit of backstory for readers as to how I came to hear this in the first place. Also, if you are indeed able to track down Katrina, again, I'm sorry I don't remember her last name, please do let me know. I would love the opportunity to reconnect and would like to know that she's okay. I've traveled to the UK frequently throughout my life, whether it be for film festivals, vacations with family, my mother has roots in Scotland, or on a few occasions to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. I've performed there once, and have gone a couple of times as a spectator, and it was on one of these trips where I met Katrina, a local actress. My wife and I met her waiting in line for a circus show and struck up a conversation which eventually turned into meeting her and her castmates for drinks after their show. These things happen at the Edinburgh Fringe. We became fast friends, and one night, as the sun was coming up, she asked if we wanted to hear a crazy story. Of course we said yes, because crazy stories are best told as the sun is coming up with about a dozen pints in you. This is the story she told me about her friend Sharon. When she was finished, I asked if I could write it down, and she agreed. Sadly, after this night, she seemed to withdraw a bit. I don't really know what happened to Katrina. She's not on Facebook or anything, so we haven't kept up since that night. I hope she's well. She certainly seemed shaken by just sharing this story with me. 
but I'm glad she did. Also, just a quick note regarding what you're doing and this eyeless man project. I have to admit, when you first told me about the myth, I didn't understand how it connected to my story. But thinking through it since our first correspondence, I'm pretty rattled. You've given me a lot to think about, Professor. Good luck with your research. I hope you find some answers. Graham Skipper it was the summer of 2016 when a young woman by the name of Sharon Lockenby was at one of her monthly get-togethers with her group of friends. The ladies, all friends since elementary school, made it a point to get dinner on the last Saturday of every month, a tradition they'd kept for four years going. It was always a boisterous night out, with too much wine, a rotating series of stories they'd told one another thousands of times before, and lots of laughs. This time it was Sharon's turn to choose the restaurant, so she chose a small seaside spot in the town of Margate, 130 kilometers southeast of London. Her friends groaned and complained about having to travel so far for dinner, but it was Sharon's call and she lived in Margate, so fuck them. She was always having to take the train into London to see them, and then either crash on someone's couch or take the long, sobering ride back at two in the morning. She felt zero sympathy for any of them. They had a lovely dinner in the tiny restaurant, packed with tourists on a clear summer night. Sharon's table was the loudest by far. They laughed and clinked glasses and at times shouted over one another, uncommon for reserved British locals and even more uncommon in a small cafe in Margate. Needless to say, they drew attention from the other patrons in the restaurant. Some were annoyed at their unruly neighbors, while others were bemused, the joviality of the ladies' table being somewhat infectious. At some point during the evening, several bottles of wine in, Sharon was regaling the others with a story about some encounter she'd recently had with a lady in a supermarket, and the climax of her story was, in her words, a spot-on impression of the insufferable woman. Move your arse, you cunt, lest I cunt slap you in the arse. She growled in the woman's toad-like squawk. She accompanied this with a contorted face. Her brows creased, her eyes crossed, and her lips curled like a cartoon pirate. She was always good at impressions, and this one felt like an instant classic. Outlandish, gross, and hilarious, all made better by a mouthful of wine-stained teeth. She even allowed a bit of the red to drip down her chin for added effect. As she'd hoped, the impression brought the house down. The other ladies at the table laughed raucously, remarking how Sharon always was the class clown and how she really should have been a stand-up comic and that she's just so crazy. What none of them had noticed, or perhaps had but hadn't given another thought about, was that a flash had gone off during Sharon's climactic performance. Somewhere in the restaurant, a fellow patron had snapped a photo catching Sharon at her most grotesque. Perhaps they enjoyed her performance and wanted to capture it to tell friends back home. Perhaps they resented her interruption of their quiet meal and wanted to immortalize such an annoying person. Whatever the reason for snapping that picture, it would go on to change Sharon's life forever. The next morning, Sharon woke to the blinding sun and a pounding wine headache. She was grateful it was a Sunday. This was a hangover for which she would have called in sick. 
She practically crawled into the kitchen to make some tea, guzzling water from the tap. Bleary-eyed, she picked up her phone and began her compulsive morning ritual, scrolling through Facebook. There were the usual news posts, some pictures of friends' babies, why were all her friends having babies, and political posts, mostly about the upcoming U.S. election. But one blurred image, coasting past as she absentmindedly swiped up, caught her eye. She reversed and slowly scrolled back up her feed until she found the offending photo. It was her. More specifically, it was a picture of her from the previous evening, her face contorted ridiculously, and it had been memified, emblazoned with the words, I'll cunt slap you in the arse. She let out an audible laugh, covering her mouth incredulously. Who had posted this? Who had taken this picture? It was posted via one of those clickbait websites, the kind whose big news break were dumb memes like this, the kind of website she scrolled through on the loo. She read the accompanying article, which was little more than speculation on what the crazy drunk woman was doing, and laughed at her own idiotic expression and red wine-stained teeth. She also thought it was hilarious that she'd been immortalized wearing the stupid dinosaur sweatshirt she'd worn. Her friend Katrina had gotten it for her as a gag gift for her birthday, because she was as old as a dinosaur, so she wore it to spite her. It got a good laugh out of everybody. She was most relieved, however, that the article did not once mention her by name. Thank God. She immediately saved the picture to her camera roll and went into the group chat she always had going with the dinner ladies. She attached the picture with the comment, Which of you bitches took this picture? WTF, LMFAO. Almost immediately the others started responding, every one of them denying having taken the photo, but agreeing that it was fucking hysterical. You're a legend, Katrina commented. Hashtag immortal. Sharon went about her morning, enjoying her three minutes of fame, and chuckled when she saw the image pop up on a couple of other places on her feed. One friend from university tagged her in it with a comment, Holy shit, Sharon, is this you? Hashtag classic Sharon. Every comment was good-natured and kind, albeit with a little bit of well-deserved ribbing. Sharon's mother had always told her that her silliness would get her the wrong kind of attention someday, and so Sharon knew that if her mother ever saw this, she'd never hear the end of it. But she didn't mind. It was funny. As the day went on, more and more blogs and news sites, nothing legit, just more clickbait aggregators, picked up the photo and shared it. One site even had several variations, the original photo, but with different text accompanying it. Who wants a wee kiss? Got syphilis? Hello, you cunts. Welcome to Toad Hole. She laughed at that last one. She was amazed at how quickly it had traveled and transformed, how sudden and swift its rise had been. It was comforting to think that its fall would be just as swift. That's how these things go, she thought to herself. Instantly famous, instantly unfamous. But as the week went on, she came to realize that her becoming unfamous was not coming quickly at all. The memes spread, popping up on a few local late-night talk shows around the UK and Ireland. One of them featured 20 different variations of the meme. 20 different captions to her same stupid face. Blogs wondered if she had a drinking problem. 
A nonprofit benefiting those with mental handicaps urged people not to share the meme as it mocked the mentally challenged. Strangers on the street began to recognize her and asked for selfies, always begging her to make that face. She obliged at first, but then stopped altogether. People called her rude for refusing a picture. You're famous. You should be grateful, they'd say. But she wasn't grateful. After two weeks of the meme's continuous spread, like the world's most annoying virus, her boss called her into his office. He told her that the company was concerned at the negative attention the picture was bringing to her and that prospective clients, when they came across her picture on the company's website, were hesitating to come in because they thought she was a crazy drunk. Or, conversely, people were contacting them purely to see if they could get a meeting with the cunt-slap lady. She was fired. She was devastated and immediately filed a complaint with Human Resources, but she didn't hold out much hope that she would be reinstated. And really, did she want that? Fuck them, she thought. I'm famous now. I can do whatever I want. Good timing, then, that a book publisher called her within the week, offering her a staggering advance to write a book about her rise to internet stardom. Apparently, she learned during the phone call, hers was one of the most swiftly shared and duplicated memes in history. On par with Irma Gerd Girl, Grumpy Cat, and Harambe. It's a miracle, the lady on the other end of the line told her. You're sitting on a gold mine. Sharon took the deal without even thinking. Fuck yes, she'd write a book. The publisher even told her they would hire a ghostwriter and that she wouldn't have to type a single word. She could just share her thoughts and the writer would do the rest, and then she could sit back and collect a check. Sounded pretty good to her. She started to become more comfortable with taking selfies with people. She started to own her newfound stardom, even going so far as to get the original meme framed and hung on her wall. A month passed, and it was time for her dinner with the ladies. What stories she'd have to tell this time. She'd kept mostly in touch with Katrina throughout all of this. She was the friend she was closest to, and they spoke on the phone regularly. Katrina, of course, thought all of this was bizarre but hilarious. Sharon couldn't help but notice, however, that Katrina seemed distant lately. She'd asked her about it, but Katrina insisted it was nothing. Sharon doubted this, but let it go. Oh well, we all go through weird stretches from time to time. The restaurant was chosen, someplace in Soho in London. She didn't mind taking the train in this time. She needed to get out of Margate for an evening, become anonymous again. Dinner started fine, but her friends were all acting differently around her. Even Katrina. Especially Katrina. She couldn't quite put her finger on it, but there was something stilted about their interactions, and she swore that Katrina seemed nervous. At first, they tried to act as if nothing were different, which she appreciated, but which also seemed ridiculous. She'd already texted them about her book deal, and her face was literally everywhere so she naturally assumed they'd at least discuss all this craziness. The conversation was also not as lively as it normally was. Less wine was drunk, the stories were quieter, the laughter more subdued. Eventually, Sharon wanted to talk about the elephant in the room. Are you all mad at me or something? She asked the group. She was met with silence. Eventually, Katrina spoke up. It's just awkward, love. 
All of us keep getting asked about you, and what's wrong with you, and why you drunk that night, and are you on drugs, all this horrible stuff, and it's made things hard for us. Sorry, but it's the truth. Sharon had to take a second to fully understand what her friend had said. Did she really just claim that their struggles were at all comparable to hers? That just being associated with her was too difficult for them? We're just saying, dear, that we don't like being in the spotlight. Sharon erupted at them. How dare they, she growled. They had no idea what she'd been through, how this had affected her life. Had they been fired over this? No. Were their pictures plastered all over God's green earth, proclaiming them to be idiots or psychopaths or drunks or drug addicts? No. How dare they say it was hard on them? She told them all they could go fuck themselves and stood enraged. Then the flashes started. Cameras all over the restaurant, snapping photos, filming, Instagramming. Hashtag crazy cunt lady is back. Sharon didn't care. She stormed out of the restaurant into the London night and made a beeline to the nearest pub where she ordered a shot of tequila. No, two. Pint of lager, please. I feel it's important to note that when Katrina told me this, she seemed devastated by what had happened. She said the group had all spoken privately beforehand and that their intention was to have a conversation about it and maybe see if Sharon could stop leaning into her newfound fame quite so hard. They thought that maybe if she stopped this book deal, they could all go back to being anonymous regular people. Katrina insisted she had had the best of intentions, but had bungled the whole thing. She was really depressed about how it all went down. The rest of the night was a haze. Sharon drank more, bummed several cigarettes from a nice-looking gentleman outside the pub, got his number, grabbed a tall can of Heineken from the corner store, and drank it on the train ride home. On these late-night train rides, there's always a creeping feeling of anxiousness, the possibility of danger hanging in the air. Sharon always kept her guard up, keeping half an eye on her fellow train passengers. That night, there was one old woman slumped in a rear-facing seat, sleeping soundly. A couple of rowdy teen boys drank from a flask of whiskey and were playing some dumb game where they kept punching one another in the arm and giggling. And she had a vague memory of another man hunched in a corner. Or it might have been a reflection in the window. She had been pretty drunk, after all. But this was something she specifically remembered, a man who was there, but who also was not there. She wondered if she'd dreamed him. After a bit, one of the teen boys was glancing at his phone when he did a comically large double-take, looking directly at Sharon. Oi, he said, pointing. That's the lady, the meme lady. His friend laughed and affirmed this. Hey, lady, do this thing for us, eh? Not in the mood, boys, Sharon said into her too quickly dwindling can of Heineken. Oh, come on, don't be a bitch about it. Just do the thing. I want to snap it. Sharon sank into her seat and buried her face in her beer again. The teen boys, filled with testosterone and fearlessness, stood up and walked over in her direction, beginning to shout obscenities and insults her way. How dare she refuse them what they wanted? Little punks had always gotten what they demanded. They were getting so loud that the old lady in the corner stirred and grimaced. But something strange happened. As the boys approached, they seemed to see a man in the corner, 
the hunched over maybe is a reflection man. Or maybe they didn't and just had a change of heart. They stopped and rubbed their eyes as if they had a sudden headache. Both boys teetered there for a moment, confused and in pain. Fuck this, one of the boys said eventually. Bitch ain't worth our time. Then they walked away, using the door to go to the next car. Sharon's blurry memory of the encounter would haunt her, especially that man in the corner, hunched over, almost but not quite there, the man who existed only in the reflection in the window. She sent a text to Katrina, a force of habit a decade old, to let the others know she'd made it home safe. She forgot for a moment how mad she was at her friends, and drunkenly typed about the strange man she'd seen and about the asshole kids. She ended the text with, I love you, C. Sorry about earlier. Sharon was grateful for the morning. Her head was pounding. She swore her hangovers got worse as she got older, and her memory of getting home was even fuzzier than her memory of the train ride itself. She checked her text messages and was thankful she'd texted Katrina. She saw that Katrina had texted back a heart emoji, simple but comforting. She hadn't wrecked all her friendships, it seemed. She turned on the TV and plopped down with her tea, hoping for something mindless to soothe her aching mind, but was so shocked by what she saw that she dropped her mug to the floor. The two teen boys who had accosted her were found murdered only a few blocks from the train station. Not just shot or stabbed like one might see from a mugging, they'd been torn apart. Disemboweled, throats ripped open, eyes gouged out, real medieval stuff. Police were looking for information regarding the crime, and Sharon knew she'd have to call in and tell them what happened. She was not looking forward to being back in the spotlight, but she knew what she had to do. Until the newscast put up her picture next. What the reporter said seemed to come out in slow motion, Sharon's mouth tingling and going dry, her vision narrowing on the images in front of her. They were looking for her in connection with the murders, because CCTV had captured her following the boys down the darkened alley shortly before the murder had happened. There were no cameras to see the actual murder take place, but they showed a clip from the security footage. And yes, sure as hell, it was her. How was this possible? First, why would she follow them? Second, where their bodies were found was way out of the way from her house. She would have had to take a significant detour to go that way. It just didn't make any sense. Had she been that drunk? She admitted that she didn't really remember leaving the train, but she always did a decent job of being able to think like drunk Sharon would have thought, and no way would drunk Sharon have ever been A, that brave as to follow those two shits, or B, so out of it as to walk the complete opposite direction of her house. But there she was, on camera. She couldn't explain it. Granted, the footage was grainy and in black and white, so she thought perhaps it could have been someone who just looked a lot like her. The weirdest thing, though, was that it looked like the woman in the video wore her same stupid dinosaur sweatshirt. But maybe she was just seeing things in the grain that weren't really there. She met with the police who questioned her for hours. She texted Katrina during her brief breaks, almost as if to document the craziness that was going on. It was nice to know her friend was there with her, even if only digitally. 
Katrina offered to come down to sit with her, but Sharon insisted she'd be fine. She told the police the complete truth of what happened and swore that she was as flummoxed as they were as to why she was on that camera. It had to be a woman who looked like her. But how was she wearing that sweatshirt? She also described, or tried to describe, the man she'd seen on the train. Perhaps if they found him, he might provide some answers as well. Her efforts at a description were largely fruitless, sadly, and all she managed to get out was that she believed there had been a man on the train, and she believed the boys had seen him. One line of questioning bothered her more than the others, though. Did you see his face? Any details at all? What color were his eyes? She hadn't seen his eyes. She didn't recall seeing any eyes at all. Then she had a thought. Why don't they check any of the cameras installed on her normal walk home? Surely that would show them that she was elsewhere at the time of the murder, or at least she hoped it would. Lo and behold, it worked. A CCTV camera picked her up walking about ten blocks in the opposite direction at exactly the time she, or whoever it was, was recorded following the boys. She couldn't be in two places at the same time, obviously, and so the police apologized and decided it must just be someone that looks a lot like you. One of them joked that maybe she had an identical twin she didn't know about. Sharon didn't find that funny. But of course, she was all over the news. At least it felt like she was. It was mainly local news stories and blogs, and it didn't matter that the police released a statement saying that it wasn't her in the video and that she'd been cleared of all suspicion. The internet took the story and ran with it, and all of a sudden the memes were back, but this time captioned with things like, Me murderer, derp. I like to eat young boys in alleys. Or, I'm gonna cunt slap you to death. The book publisher was thrilled. This would surely spike interest. How quickly could the book be written? She'd kept putting off reading and approving the first couple of chapters that the ghostwriter had churned out, and she knew she needed to do that. But not today. Maybe not this week. Her brain was a mess, trying to figure out how she could be in two places at once. Not that she actually believed she had been, but damn, that woman did in fact look a lot like her. Exactly like her. And that dumb sweatshirt. Later that week, a tabloid ran a story. Margate meme murderer spotted in California, with an accompanying photo that showed a woman who looked tremendously like her on a beach in Los Angeles. But the photo was somewhat grainy and obviously wasn't her because she was still on the English coast. Over the course of the next month, more stories ran. Globe-trotting meme murder suspect in Paris. Meme murderer spotted on the same day in Prague and Montreal. Is the acquitted meme murderer our new Bigfoot? She appreciated the last one for at least adding the word acquitted and for the creativity of photoshopping Bigfoot fur all over the original photo. Over the next several months, the popularity of the meme seemed to slow down a little bit. The publisher was in a rush to finish the book so that they could get it onto bookshelves before interest in the meme waned. Sharon continued to get recognized in the street, but that started to become less and less common. Another meme was popular now some baby eating an ice cream cone. And with the slowing of her meme's popularity, so too did the sightings of her around the world become less and less frequent. Once in a while, her Google alert would ping that she'd been spotted in some fantastic location. Once it was as far away as Madagascar. 
but the truth was she never left Margate. She didn't even go into London anymore to have her monthly friend dinners. She hadn't spoken to any of them except Katrina, and even she only via the occasional text since that horrible night. Then one day she received a phone call from her mother. Her mother called her about once a week, sometimes less, but it was always a pleasant conversation. She picked up and could immediately tell her mother was in tears. Mom, what's wrong? she asked. She was convinced she was about to find out her father had died. How could you? her mother replied, sadness and venom in her voice. What are you talking about? The things you said, how hurtful you were. Your poor father, he's still in shock. Sharon was beyond confused. Mom, what did I say? When was this? I don't know what you're talking about. Last night, Sharon, what you said last night. Sharon had no clue what her mother was talking about. They hadn't spoken on the phone. She hadn't done any kind of an interview. Hell, she wasn't even on Facebook anymore, so this couldn't even be in reference to some unkind post she'd made. Mom, we didn't speak last night. Don't try to get out of this, Sharon. We spoke all right. You walked right in this door and... What did you say? Sharon couldn't have heard what she had just heard. I said, you walked right in this door and you started spouting such hateful... I'm in Margate. I was here last night, Sharon protested. Then who was it that walked in through my front door and called me such horrible things? It was like you were on a rampage. Mom, I don't know who you talked to last night, but it wasn't me. I haven't left Margate. You live in Scotland, for Christ's sake. I'd have had to be on a train all day yesterday. Her mother obviously didn't believe her. You're a hateful young woman. You drink too much. I could smell the booze on you. It was like you were a completely different person than the lovely young woman I raised. And your father, he is just devastated. Mum, it wasn't me, I'm telling you. And you're a liar now, too. Or maybe you're schizophrenic. Either way, you need to get help. And until you do, don't bother talking to us. Her mother hung up. Sharon's mouth fell open in dumb shock. She had been in Margate all night, there was no doubt of that. She'd spent the evening on her sofa, had one glass of wine, and went to bed early. Why would her mother think she'd been at her house in Scotland? Had she dreamed it? Had some crazy woman come to her house and berated her mother and father, and in the dark of night she'd looked like Sharon? That didn't make any sense. No matter how dark, you'd know your own daughter if she was staring you in the face. She tried to call her mother back several times, but to no avail. She wouldn't answer nor would her father. She would have emailed them, but they didn't have email, so she decided she would simply go up north and see them herself. She got on the train that afternoon and took the overnight up to their small suburb outside of Edinburgh. She'd arrived early in the morning, about 6 a.m., but knew that they'd be awake and so went straight to their home. And of course, she texted Katrina that she'd made it safely. She was more grateful for their friendship now than ever. Katrina's texts felt like a lifeline to the real world while she stumbled around beyond the looking glass. She knocked on the door and called their phone from the front porch. She could hear it ringing inside, going unanswered. She shouted for her mother that she was outside, but she wasn't coming to the door. After about fifteen minutes, certainly long enough for her parents to have woken up if they weren't already, 
She felt behind that weird ceramic toad on the ground to find the spare key and grabbed it, opening the door. The house was cold and quiet. She called out for her parents, but got no reply. Even if they hadn't wanted her to come in, now that she was inside the house, she at least expected them to confront her. What were they going to do, hide in the pantry? She went from room to room, calling out for them. She wondered if they'd suddenly gone on a holiday. Their car was in the driveway, but perhaps they'd gotten a friend to take them to the train station. Maybe they'd gone up to Aberdeen, as they sometimes did. But then she arrived at their upstairs bedroom and was horrified to open the door and see... It was too ghastly to even describe. Her poor parents, their bodies totally ravaged by what could have been a bear or a tiger. It was beyond a nightmare. She called the police, of course, and answered hundreds of questions. She told them the whole truth about the phone call and why she'd gone up there to begin with. At the end of it all, she told the police she'd stay in town to help however she could, and they responded with what she felt was almost a chuckle. Of course you're staying in town. You're staying at the station. You're arresting me? She asked, incredulous. Ma'am, your mother called the police last night, saying that you had barged into their home and were threatening their lives. It wouldn't have been last night. It would have been the night before. And it wasn't me. She just thought it was me. No, ma'am. Your mother called then, too. But she called back again last night, saying you had returned and were threatening them. But I was on a train last night, coming up here. I didn't get here till six this morning. Ma'am, we came to the house. We spoke with your mother and father, and we spoke with you. Everything seemed to have calmed down, and you agreed to leave. Who spoke with me? I did, ma'am, as did Sergeant Dean over there. But it wasn't me. It was you as sure as I'm sitting here. Now please turn around. Bewildered, Sharon allowed the officer to place her in handcuffs and lead her to the police car. She told them from the back seat, Check the cameras. I was in the train station in Margate yesterday afternoon. There's no way I could have made it up here. Check the tapes. They assured her they would, in a very non-reassuring voice. News spread quickly that she'd been arrested, that the Margate meme murderer had struck again, and that she wouldn't get away this time. The memes circulated like wildfire, such awful hateful things being captioned to that idiotic photo of her telling that stupid story. But the police kept their word and did indeed check the tapes. And just as she'd said, there she was, on the train exactly where she said she'd been, 400 miles from the scene when the police had been interviewing... her. It was bewildering, especially to Sharon, who couldn't understand why not only the police, but her own mother had been so convinced by this imposter. Of course, the other problem was that she looked so similar to the imposter that the police now weren't sure if she was the actual Sharon or the imposter who just happened to know where the real Sharon had been. So, they held her in custody until they could sort through it a bit more. Over the next several days, Sharon was able to provide more evidence of where she had been over the past couple of weeks. Just to prove that she hadn't somehow flown back and forth between her nearest airport, Southend, and Edinburgh in an attempt to create alibis. She'd had a video doorbell installed at her house in Margate when her popularity began to rise, 
so she had a fairly consistent document of when she came and went from her house. It proved without a doubt that she could not have committed those murders. So they released her, but asked that she stay up north for further questioning. She rented a hotel room and looked forward to a shower and a good night's sleep and some time alone. She couldn't resist logging on and seeing if her meme had had any kind of a resurgence in popularity. It had become a bit of an addiction of hers, looking at herself in that horrible pose and seeing what people were saying about her. Never read the comments, so many people said. But she couldn't resist. Sometimes she'd log into social media channels as an anonymous profile and argue with people who were being negative. Most were negative. After the news had broken that she was back in jail, suspected of another murder, the vast majority of the memes now had captions along the lines of what you look like when you first get to hell, the personification of karma, die bitch die, and this is your brain on I killed my parents on meth, durr. She tried texting her group of friends, but none of them responded these days. None of them except Katrina seemed interested in patching things up. Katrina encouraged her to give it time, but Sharon wasn't optimistic that things would ever get back to normal. She looked back online. Her meme really was ramping up. It was all over her various feeds, and more and more the captions called for her death or for much more horrible things to happen to her. It was really distressing. Then she received a phone call, which she assumed was the police since they were the only ones who knew what hotel she was staying at but the voice on the other line was definitely not a police officer. Hello, Sharon asked, a bit annoyed and a lot tired. A woman's voice responded on the other end of the line. There was a sharpness to her, something vaguely malevolent. Hello, Sharon, it's me. Who is this? Sharon responded, frustrated and with no patience for games. You know... The people want what they want, Sharon. Your head on a pike. Sharon had an uncanny feeling that this was the person who'd murdered her parents and who killed those two teen boys. She shuddered at the thought of this person knowing where she was. What do you want? Sharon asked, her voice cracking. You, 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 you. The woman on the other end then started laughing. It was horrible. Just as suddenly, she stopped. Meet me in the graveyard across the street from your hotel. Five minutes, no police. Then she abruptly hung up. Sharon, of course, immediately called the police, telling them everything and that she was going to meet this woman in the graveyard, an appropriate place for a murderer's meetup. And they better be there, ready to catch the real murderer. The police said they would be there, not to worry. Sharon worried. She also texted Katrina briefly what had happened and what she was about to do. She ended the text with, Love you, C. Thanks for sticking by me. It would be the last contact Katrina ever had with her friend. So this is where Katrina's story intersects with hard reality. After hearing about this whole thing, I decided to do a little digging and I found that pretty much everything I was told is backed up by police and news records if you look hard enough. I've attached one news story here. I read this, and my heart felt like it dropped like an anchor through the floor. 
No wonder Katrina became so withdrawn after sharing this with me. What a painful, horrible, insane memory this must be for her. Breaking News Police arrived at Morningside Cemetery on the outskirts of Edinburgh after celebrity murder suspect Sharon Lockenby claimed the real murderer would soon be meeting her for a clandestine rendezvous. Police arrived at the scene to find Ms. Lockenby standing with an identical twin sister, still unnamed, in the cemetery. They appeared to be arguing, and when police made their presence known, both began claiming that they were the real Sharon. One officer commented, it was like something out of a movie. Soon, one of the women attacked the other with a hidden knife, and police opened fire. The attacking woman was shot dead, while the surviving woman was taken into custody with grave wounds. The surviving woman claims she is the real Sharon Lockenby, but police were able to determine after viewing CCTV footage from the hotel that Ms. Lockenby's clothes as she left the hotel were consistent with the deceased. The other, as yet unnamed assailant, is currently in custody. And here's a couple of other interesting bits of information. The Sharon double has yet to reveal a name or to be identified through DNA testing. Her DNA is an exact match to Sharon Lockenby, which means they have to be identical twin siblings, although there is zero record of Sharon having been a twin. In addition, when the imposter was arrested, she was wearing a sweatshirt covered in dinosaurs an identical match to the one Sharon is wearing in the meme. But here's the kicker. In the days and weeks following this news story breaking, the meme became super popular again, this time with captions talking about more twins yet to be announced and will the real Sharon Lockenby please stand up? And in that time, three more murders occurred in different countries around the world while the Sharon lookalike was still in custody. And in every single case, the description of the assailant, whether caught on camera or from an eyewitness, was identical. They looked exactly like Sharon Lockenby. The official theory is that these are the actions of copycat killers or perhaps just a kind of mass delusion. We see what we want to see, and people want to see Sharon Lockenby. I'm not sure what I believe, to be honest. Or maybe I do, but I don't want to admit what I think is the real truth. One final thing I found very interesting. There's a clip from the BBC's coverage of the cemetery incident taken immediately after the shooting and arrest of the Sharon Double. In the background, as the camera moves to try to catch a shot of the gurney being wheeled toward the ambulance, you can see a bystander in the background. It's a man, blurry and part static, almost there, but not quite. In the same instant when you think you can see him, Another part of you wonders if he's there at all, or if it is just a trick of the recording. I had a buddy of mine who works in film restoration take a look at it, and he was baffled. He said even if you isolate a single frame, the image of that man still appears to skip. Must be something wrong with the data itself, he said. Could just be a ghost in the tape. Want to dig deeper into the phenomena investigated in this Shudder original podcast? Check out Tiller Press and Simon & Schuster Audio's Video Palace, In Search of the Eyeless Man, available in book, audiobook, and ebook formats. Join folklorist Dr. Maynard Wills and a host of horror and gothic fiction writers as they collect urban legends connected to Mark and Tamara's pursuit of the white tapes. 